Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, with that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. Before we get to our guest, we want to thank our audience for questions coming from at Feeds Explorers, at I am Imprem, Julian S, Ann Hill O, BCS, Hayden L, Jonathan J, Marcus K, Nick D, at Cloud Magellan, and Terry P. So today we have Master Uranium Expert, Mr. Michael Alkin on the line. Mike is Chief Investment Officer and founder of Sachem Cove Partners, LLC, a uranium vehicle that has been set up to reap the coming rewards in the uranium sector. Michael, welcome. Andrew, how are you? Thanks for having me. By the way, nobody's ever called uh, my, my kids and wife would laugh if they heard you call me a, a master at, at anything. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like falling off ladders, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep, yep. Oh, good. Well, I, I thought I'd get some kick out of that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Mike, another another uh, another funny question on the comedy side. Uh, your Twitter profile picture with the guy in, with the stogie in his mouth. Yep. Is that you back in the day? <laughs> that is my favorite TV show of all time, Columbo. Detective, <laughs> Detective Columbo, Peter Falk. <laughs> and, you know, Columbo was always the guy that was kind of a little rumpled and the guy that people just kind of underestimated and he just kind of was just doing his work and, and but always had his eye on the ball. So that it was always my favorite uh, TV character. Oh, good. No, I, that's good stuff. And I, I didn't know that. I'll have to look up that show. And of course, that yep. kind of puts my age in light. And uh, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, so tell us about uh, Sachem Cove, uh, the funds under management. Uh, tell us about the team there and the reason why folks should look at this business. Uh, well, you know, it's it's. I, I just want to be clear. This, uh, I, I, it is a private investment partnership. Uh, the firm is a, a, an investment firm uh, formed to invest in the uranium cycle. Uh, we express the view through a vehicle that is a private investment partnership only available to accredited investors. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I won't go into a description of what that is. People have to look at what an accredited investor is. Uh, and um, uh, you know, uh, in 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 terms of uh, what we do, we we scour the earth looking for uh, both public and private uranium uh, investments uh, that uh, to to express our our bullish view on the uranium sector. Uh, so that's 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 what Sachem Cove is. How how's the work going there? Uh, no, it's going well. I mean, look, we ha we have uh, this has been the last three-ish years of my life has been uh, de devoted uh, to really uh, understanding a very opaque, uh, complicated industry. Uh, from my perspective, uh, having been in the hedge fund business over 20 years uh, and uh, being a generalist for the most part, uh, especially the first first portion of my career, and, and I was a short seller, pretty much a dedicated short seller early in my career. Um, but but what you learn is when you when you're a generalist, you look at all sorts of different industries, and uh, you know you parachute in and and you try and understand the fundamentals of the industry, and um, uh, by not 
by doing your own analysis, you know, the financial analysis is one thing, right? So balance sheet, cash flow statement analysis, income statement analysis, uh, and, and understanding capital structures, that's, that's part of being a financial analyst. Um, but, uh, you know, the hedge funds that I worked, uh, our, our job was really to, to be like detectives, uh, investigative journalists, detectives with, with, with a lot of financial chops <laughs> that, that, you know, knew how to do a, a lot of deep dive financial work. But, uh, you know, our, our goal, uh, my goal was, uh, my career was spent analyzing industries across the globe, uh, pretty much every industry out there I've probably looked at in my career. You know, sometimes you're, you're in there for a cup of coffee, you know, a brief, a brief view and, you, you know, you might spend a few weeks or a month or others, other industries, you, you might really start to form a thesis and spend uh, many months or years sometimes doing it. And you might not look at that industry again for a couple of years, but you come back and take a fresh look at it. And, you know, it just depends what, what, uh, what, what you're looking for, uh, whether on the short side or the long side, sometimes you get an industry that you sink your teeth into and, uh, you know, you're out in the field. Uh, the newsletter industry likes to call it boots on the ground research, you know, whatever. Um, it's primary research. It's field research. It's it's forming a an opinion based upon compiling a consensus, uh, a uh, a mosaic of information, because there's consensus, which is the sell side analysts, which have if they're covering the industry, which most industries have it, and we'll get to uranium and how that's pretty much disappeared. But there's some consensus of numbers for expectations, and that's formed typically by the sell side. Uh, and you know, your job as as an analyst in, in in the hedge fund world, or as a you know, I, I won't speak to what mutual funds and other private money managers do, uh, but your job is to go out and understand if consensus is correct. And the way you do that is by talking to people throughout the supply chains, throughout the cycle, throughout the throughout the uh, uh, supply chain of the industry. So you might talk to suppliers, you might talk to customers, uh, you might talk to um, uh, uh, people who are providing services to the industry, consulting services to the industry. You speak to former employees in the industry or industry um, people who uh, who consult on the industry. You're just looking for information and you're looking to take all those pieces of information and going out into the field and talking and interviewing them and and putting that information together to see if it squares with what consensus is. And, and you're taking the numbers, right? So if you're looking at any industry, whatever it may be, if you're looking at, well, what's the revenue? How do you generate revenue? Um, what's it comprised of? Is it comprised of price and comprised of volume? And when you're looking at your, your profits, your what's the... What's the mix of what they're selling? Is it is it is is you know what percentage of lower price products, mid mid price products, high price products, and is that changing? Is that morphing over time? And if so, is that being captured in the consensus numbers? Are people coming? At, is there new technology that's causing changes to a to an industry that's causing the the cost curve to go down? Um, is it being captured in consensus? Is there something new that's going on? Um, so, so that's kind of uh, how how we go about looking at it. Um, and so, you know, three years ago, what caught my attention was was the uranium industry. And uh, you know, through through my career, I've I've worked at uh, a couple of hedge funds that had 
uh, a deeply cyclical, very value-oriented bent uh, to them. And so uh, industries that are uh, either very in favor, out of favor, that are deeply cyclical are something that I'm, I tend to be drawn to. Uh, you, you tend to have to bring a contrarian's eye to it or an approach to it, which is not always easy. Uh, but that's uh, because you're, you're oftentimes um, looking to see uh, consensus is typically very strong in one way. If, if a market is in an elongated bear market or in an exceptionally elongated bull market, uh, if an industry is in one of those markets, uh, consensus tends to capture all of the good stuff and all of the bad stuff if it's in the bear market. And uh, over time, even the industry participants, they they envelop the consensus. If you're in an industry that has been beaten up for four or five years, and you're you're in working in that industry, and you've seen colleagues and people just losing jobs, and you start to hear everything, it, it, people are human, and and you start to see and people disappearing, desks emptying out, guys you used to confer with on a regular basis are no longer there. This guy lost his job. That that guy lost their job. Um, you start to to take over that. It's, it starts to permeate everywhere, and the negativity starts to occur. Now, in, in most industries, there's a lot of eyeballs looking at it. So, uh, you know, in, in these deeply cyclical, uh, industrial cyclicals or, uh, you know, machinery companies or natural resource companies, big copper, there's there's tens of thousands of people analyzing and looking at these. There's there's countless number of sell-side firms that are writing research on them because most of them have big companies. What, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of banking business to be done. And so there's, there's still attention paid to it. They're big markets. Um, uranium is different. You know, uranium at one point was 130 plus billion for industry going back uh, you know, in, into the middle part of the 2000s. Um, you know, when I started looking at it, it was a four, little over four billion dollar industry, and half of that was in one publicly traded company, Cameco. And so what what kind of, what happened there was the institutional investor disappeared. Uh, if you're running any fund of any real size, you can't invest in an industry that small. Uh, if there's one company that you could choose, you know, if you're running a, a billion dollar fund plus or uh, you, you really don't have, uh, if, if you wanted to have a 3 or 4% position in a company, you need to buy, on a, if you're just a billion dollar fund, you need to buy $30 million worth of stock. Well, in many cases, in the uranium industry, that could have been many of the companies. So, you know, and, and you typically, as a fund manager, most guys don't want to own more than, than, than 5% of a company, sometimes more 10% of a company. You get into control issues. So it really limits. So you started to see the institutional interest dry up. Uh, funds are not in the business of catching falling knives, right? It's a very competitive landscape if you're running a hedge fund uh, or if you're running a mutual fund. You're you're competing against your peers, and so in and when industries aren't working, time isn't your friend necessarily. Uh, you don't have the luxury of saying, "Here's an industry I think is mispriced." Uh, I'm going to wait it out for a year and a half or two years because I've never seen values like this. But it could take a while for for the 
for the healing to occur, they don't have the luxury of time because they're reporting numbers. If you're a mutual fund, it's daily. If you're a hedge fund, it's monthly or quarterly. And so people tend to avoid the really beaten up industries uh, if you're a generalist hedge fund. Um, and so you, this, this, the uranium industry had just a uh, complete vacancy from and, and still mostly does from institutional investors, uh, and that caught my eye uh, because I I couldn't really recall an industry when I started really diving into it three years ago that was so vacated, that was so left for dead, and yet was so important to the global landscape, the global energy landscape, you know, and and specific in the, in the U.S. Nuclear power is 20% of the electric grid. It's 12% of the global electric grid, and uh, you know it's 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 big business. It's it's meaningful. I mean, it changes you know countries and lives. It's important, and uh, but yet the institutional ownership was gone. The number of companies had shrunk from 500 at the peak to 50, maybe, and and and. Uh, so, so as a, as an analyst, you you go back to the Colombo stuff, right? Uh, uh, on my on my Twitter picture, you know, you're you're out <laughs> doing investigative work, and so one of the things you start when you're you're an analyst uh, working at one of these funds is you, uh, or you know, bring your professional analytical eye to it is is let me see what the sell side is saying. What are what are how are they thinking about it? And uh, by sell side, I mean you know the investment banks and the research that they write. And uh, as I started to look at some of the research that was out there, what caught my eye was uh, many of the major investment banks had closed down their uranium research business uh, because there was not anything to be done. You weren't going to employ a bunch of research analysts at a major investment bank to write about uranium companies that none of your institutional clients cared about. And there was very little investment banking business to be done well, maybe with the exception of Cameco, but for the smaller companies, they were in survival mode. Uh, and um, they were too small. They had market caps, 30 million, 40 million, 50 million. Uh, that's your, your average institutional client isn't going to be interested in, in those type of companies. So the re, now there was some uh, in, uh, in Canada, there were still some investment banks that were smaller, a couple of small U.S. banks that were covering it. Uh, but but not not a lot of eyeballs on it. And what happened in, in, in the uranium world is is these analysts had been calling, uh, not all of them, but many of them had been calling for a turn in the market for years. So that never occurred. So their, their voice was falling on deaf ears. And so for me, as I started looking at it, I said, wow, this is a pretty cool setup. Um, You've got an industry that's been left for dead. It's a meaningful uh, part of the uh, global electric landscape. Uh, the institutions aren't there. Uh, let me let me let me explore it further. And that was, you know, I laughed when you, you right. introduced me as master expert uranium guy. Uh, four years ago, I couldn't have told you anything about it. I had looked at it a couple times in my career for very brief moments. And and just moved on to something else, uh, and my my wife and kids would laugh you calling me a master and expert at anything. So, um, but but <laughs> I realized then you know go to where others aren't. I like uh, throughout my career I tended to find my best ideas when you're fishing alone. 
when you are looking where others are not focused because that's where you can find uh, asymmetry, right? Um, much more reward for, for than the risk you're taking. Um, so right. that's that's how my journey began in uranium. Yeah. Yeah, and and for the record, we we don't think you're a master expert at uranium, but uh, I can I, we can say with that uh, that uh, of, of any of the people out there that proclaim to be uh, an expert at the, at these types of industries, we can say that the amount of hours, uh, whether it's five thousand plus or whatever it's been that's added up over the couple of years, uh, we can say that you've done a lot of work on the on the business. And uh, I, look, so I you're certainly say, will... getting near that. Well, what I can say is, you know, I, and I, I speak to groups. I, uh, I spoke recently to the uh, uh, Nuclear Energy Institute, and I'm happy to tell them when I'm talking to a room full of people that are in the nuclear fuel industry, uh, I am not a nuclear engineer. Uh, I am not a, mechan a mining engineer. Um, I'm not a geologist. Um, and, uh, but I understand the laws of supply and demand. And more than anything, I'm a grinder. I know how to put numbers together. Um, right. You know, I, I know how to fire up a spreadsheet, and I know how to go find information. And and that has been a big, uh, a big uh, uh, form, a uh, part of what's created my con conviction in the industry. Now, what I will say is, you know, I have because I I'm in the field talking to people doing this, and I'm not afraid to say, explain to me what that means. And uh, uh, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm a pretty quick study on stuff and uh, what I don't know. So I made it my, my life's mission to really understand uh, the nuclear fuel cycle, understand uh, how it comes out of the ground. What's the next step? It goes to conversion. From there, it goes to the enrichment. From there, it goes to fabrication. And every step along the way, I made it a point to really understand the drivers of each of those and to understand uh, what caused pricing to move, what, what drove excess supply, what, caused demand, what, what, what drives the demand in there, who are the players. So, what is, okay. uh, so, so, it, so I, I made it a point on every step along the way to just do a really deep dive. And uh, I would go out into the field and talk to people. I'd cold call people. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get smart on this. I'm probably going to ask some stupid questions. Would you mind give me a little bit of time? People are very, very helpful out there. And and then like anything, I read. I'm a voracious reader. So if I wanted to understand, uh, again, knowing, I learned a long time ago to know what my strengths and weaknesses are. I'm not a mining engineer. I'm going to go find them. I'm not a geologist. I'm going to go find them. And we're going to, and I'm going to ask them to help to educate me. And what are the things I need to pay attention to and not? And also know that I'm never going to have that level of expertise, but I'm going to be able to kind of know what they should know and judge what they're telling me. And uh, of course, you want to know what the, what's their history, what's their background, where have they been successful, where right. have they failed, right? Um, you know, I was a quarterback in, in high school, and uh, my job was to know uh, what everyone's, uh, uh, every player on the field, what, 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 what their role was on every play. I had to know that. Right. So it's no different. It was, the, it was the same. And, um, so, so for me, as, as, as I started that journey, uh, it's, it started to come together. Right.
right? And but what what drove me before I did all that is I I wanted to see if it was worth my time, worth my investigative time. And uh, that's when I started getting numbers. What is consensus? Who forms consensus? The cell side isn't really there. As I started looking at some of the the cell side numbers, I started noticing there were references to the World Nuclear Association, references to other consulting firms. And I said, oh, okay, well, one of the big things that drives me is understanding people's financial incentives. It's so important in everything I look at. And, um, you know, so tell me about this organization. Who who are their main uh, subscribers? Who belongs to it? Who pays their fees? How does that work? Oh, okay, so the utilities are the big drivers of these. Okay, well, I don't know what that means, but I understand it's not the uranium miners that are keeping these organizations in business. It's the consumers of uranium. Okay, well, maybe, just maybe, there's something behind, uh, something to, to investigate in that. that, meaning investigate, understand, how are the numbers put together? What, what's factored into it? And um, so as I started looking at the numbers and I started going to conferences, I show up at a nuclear fuel conference, at a fuel buyers conference, at a nuclear association meeting, you know, and right. it's not cheap. You you pay your 2500 bucks and you show up and you spend three days and you listen to meetings and you go grab a cup of coffee and you shake somebody's hand and say, here's who I am and ask some stupid questions. You got a minute <laughs> and embarrass yourself, right? And just go out and do it. And um, yes. so when I started doing that, I started to look at the numbers and I said, huh, well, that's interesting. Uh, the, the association um, really doesn't get involved in forecasting the price of uranium. So there are forecasts that are out there um, for existing projects. Um, can those existing projects continue out into the future until the life of that mine expires? Uh, nowhere in there, though, am I noticing what the cost of these projects are. Um, and uh, and then on some future stuff that's coming down the pike, um, there's some layered in there that that's going to be on future projects will come in and some of those are coming in and it really doesn't kind of matter what the price is. Well, how is that possible? And uh, and that's when I started to say, well, wait a second. It might be here that in this organization, that the way these numbers are compiled, um, if forecasting of price isn't factored in, well, geez, I know at the time that the price of uranium was in the low 20s. Um, and I knew from doing some reading that the average cost to pull it out of the ground was somewhere 40 to 50 bucks. And I said, well, you know, I'm, again, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but if something's costing you more to sell than it is to, uh, to make than it is to sell that, that math doesn't work. Right. So something's got to give. And as I started to then look at some of the numbers put together by the sell side, they were referencing these organizations and I said, well, wait a second. You've got an industry that is left for dead. Uh, say what you want about prof- professional investors, the institutions. One thing I can tell you is you got a bunch of really, really, really smart people in those places. And when they fire up their spreadsheets and do math, they they get the, the math right. They may not get the judgment right, uh, but they could do supply, demand, and all that stuff. But nobody's really paying attention. There's no ownership in these things. Uh, and... If I'm a if I'm a sell side analyst at a firm and I'm a mining analyst and and uh, I'm not a uranium mining analyst because that guy's been been fired and I'm a generalist mining analyst covering the big mining companies, I'm not going to 
dive down into the nuances of nuclear power. It's complicated. Uh, I'm going to use what the industry says. And that's when I started to say, wait a second, there's something here. Uh, and then I, I started looking at some of the other bodies that put numbers out there. Uh, I, um, I was comfortable that those numbers uh, weren't reflective of what I thought might be occurring. And that's when I just said, let me let me go out and understand the case for nuclear power. And uh, because, you know, as a Westerner, um, I didn't know that nuclear power was 20% of the U.S. electric grid. <clears throat> I didn't know. <clears throat> I thought nuclear power, like anyone else, I said, geez, nuclear power, it's kind of probably dying, isn't it? What do I know? Um, but I said, let me see. Uh, I knew throughout my career I've looked at solar and wind and alternative energies, um, typically from the short side. So I said, but let me, I know they're growing rapidly, so let me see, is there a case still for nuclear power? <laughs> and, um, right. right, and let me see if I, if, where do they, com- is it a competitive thing? Is it a complementary thing? And and I investigated that. And I, I concluded that uh, for electric utility grid scale, wind and solar weren't ready for that yet. Um, but they were growing by leaps and bounds, and it's they have their place. Uh, and uh, but storage costs were really high. Um, and I, I walked away after uh, a few months and said, you know, I I think this is complementary. And uh, and then I started really diving into the fundamentals of nuclear power and what's the case for it. And after a few months of that, I just said, wow, I'm sold, hook, line, and sinker, um, clean, carbon free the safety element of it on a per terawatt hour of anything produced is the safest out there. Um, it's, 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 it's two thirds of the U S is carbon free emissions. Um, and I thought, wow, that there, there is a case here for it now. So what, so what was going on? Well, low natural gas prices was what was going on. And, uh, you know, I always knew nuclear power plants, just from reading the papers, were really expensive and always over budget. Um, and uh, but most of the costs are capital costs. They're big sunk capital costs. You know, a big reactor costs you ten billion, twelve billion. Pick a number. If, if it's supposed to be online in five years, figure twelve, <laughs> um, uh, at least in the West. And um, and uh, the maintenance costs are high, the big regulatory burdens. I, I kind of probably knew that in the back of my head just from osmosis of being a, as an investor and reading a lot. Um, but but as I started diving into it, something jumped out at me, which I wasn't aware of, um, was was the feedstock element, uh, was, was, you know, the nuclear power, uranium itself, you know, the, the, the front end of the fuel cycle could be 17 to 18 to 20 percent of the overall cost of a reactor. But the actual uranium itself can range, depending on price, to from 4% to uh, pick a number, 7 8% in that ballpark, versus coal and natural uh, coal and natural gas, which I knew better because uh, a couple of the firms I was at had, had big energy presence. And sitting in meetings and listening to my partners talk, I I knew that coal and natural gas could be 70 to 80% of the of the of the operating costs. So. As I looked at this this clean source of power that was carbon free, and I, I realized that uh, uh, the the price of what the utilities pay it's not insignificant, but um, but it's it's much lower than alternatives. But but with the shale revolution in the U.S., natural gas prices imploded, 
So the utilities were shifting to natural gas-fired power plants, and coal was going away at the dodo bird. And um, so, but I, but as I started looking at it, I, I, I said, okay, well, uh, let me let me lay out all the reactors in the world, and I fired up Excel and. Uh, you know, there's it, you got to go find this information. Let me let me f- look at all the reactors. Right. See how big they are. When did they come into existence? When are they going to? Ex- when does the license expire? What are the chances that the license is going to expire? And then let me take every reactor that's out there, and uh, let's look at the co- let's look at it by country, and uh, let's take a look and see what countries are going to be. Uh, taking the nuclear power and making it less of their energy mix or maybe closing it down. Obviously, Germany is one. Switzerland's uh, uh, heading that way. Um, The U.S. is under great pressure with low natural gas prices. So I then started to compile by country the likelihood of what reactors are going to start coming off the grid. And I wanted to then understand that by country. Uh, of all the nuclear producing countries and take a somewhat draconian view of that and take those reactors that I thought were not competitive out. And, uh, you know, it required a lot of research and investigation. And then um, I did that. And uh, and then I, I said, okay, well, let me take a look at the reactors that are under construction. And what stood out at me was that this this time period, if I went back to the time the last cycle turned in 04, 05, and started to go from its long death knell to a turn, uh, there were 23 reactors under construction at the time. And there was uh, a big mines coming on, millions of pounds, tens of millions of pounds of new supply scheduled to come online. And I looked at this environment. And I said, well, wow, at the time, there were 60 reactors under construction. And that's where I started to do the math. I said, well, wait a second. Um, Because I had started to lay out all the mines in the world by country and all the new projects that would be needed. So as I laid out the reactors by country, all the heavy closures and all the new reactors that were going to come in by, by country, by year, throughout through 2025, 2026, as I started looking at that, when I did that math, I said, well, wait a second, nuclear power is actually a growth industry. And again, I was draconian in my closure assumptions. U.S., uh, uh, France, I was very aggressive, Belgium, Germany, Switzerland, South Korea, uh, for where, you, uh, and then I started to layer in those under construction. And then for my forecast period, which goes out to 2028, uh, 2030, I'm sorry, uh, the, the, uh, on a few different things, it's 2028, 2029, um, I started looking at all of the number, the countries around the world. Well, where is it growing? It's growing in the emerging markets, right? You, you could bring, a, you could bring millions of people onto the grid and, um, you could bring them on. And uh, you've got clean, you know, pollution in China and India is 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 horrific. It's it's at crisis levels. But here you could bring on clean energy, and uh, in countries typically where the population doesn't have much of a say, right? Uh, we don't want you're not going to see a lot of nuclear anti-nuclear protests in China. Um, so you started to, to as I started to do that, I, I realized. In my draconian growth assumptions, this is kind of a 1% grower, give or take a little bit. 
Um, and if I started to layer in some of those planned and or proposed reactors, not proposed, I didn't layer in any proposed, but going way out into my forecast period, let me bring in just a small fraction of some of the planned reactors. They have approvals, they just haven't been constructed yet. I, you can dream up a little dream and see it's a 3% per hour, right? So um, I looked at that and I, I said, there's something to do here. And that's when I then was layering in, uh, you know, when a new reactor comes online, it consumes in its initial fuel load uh, at least two times uh, the amount of uranium it will consume per year. Uh, some people use up to three times in their math, but I use two. And as I started doing that, and then I started looking at when some of these mines were scheduled to come offline, some of the bigger mines, and then I started looking at uh, when uh, the cost to operate these mines, and I'll get into that in a second. But as I started doing that, um, you know, that I'm dealing on the primary mine supply side. Um, I now, where the association doesn't take into account forecasting price, I certainly can. And I started to say, well, wait a second. The nature of the industry is such where even though the spot price of uranium had gone from 137 back in 07 down to, to tw low 20s, um, that's not the price these companies were selling off of. The nature of, this, of the industry is such that they have long-term contracts. So the price of uranium could have been at 23, but companies were selling at 50 and 60 and $70 contracts. And not, they don't have total exposure to spot, so they could have been covered. And so... Uh, as I started thinking, I said, well, when those contracts start to expire, my gosh, you're going to, how can you re-enter new contracts if, if the spot was 23 and term was 30, longer term? What CEO could actually do that to keep his job? How, how do you do that when the co it costs you 40 or 50 bucks to pull it out of the ground? You can't. So that's when I started to take some liberties in my analysis and said, okay, well, you know, let me get my head around going, reading all these reports, listening, talking to companies, reading what they're saying, and, and who are the ones that are really going to be uh, at risk? And how many pounds are going to have to come out of the uh, out of supply? Um, and at the time, that wasn't part of the math. That wasn't part of consensus. Consensus was, hey, all these things are there, and there's all this secondary supply. And when I started doing just basic supply, demand, and economics, uh, knowing how a public company works, and that's most of these, except with the exception of Kazakhstan, which now is, but at the time wasn't, it was pretty obvious to me that that a, a significant amount of supply was going to have to come offline over the next 12 to 18 months. It, it just had to. You can't, you know, Rick Rule has said this, and it, it's, it's right. You, you can't you can't produce at 50 and sell at 20. The math doesn't work. And, and you know, that's it's just obvious. But, but that, again, no eyeballs looking at it, institutional-wise. Uh, sector left for dead. And, and there you were. So that, that's what started to get me really excited. Um, and, and then I started to get into secondary sources. But, but I've been rambling, so I'll let you ask me questions. Um, so. Well, Mike, that's been a, a long-winded, comprehensive view. And uh, I would suggest that the uh, the audience take some notes and uh, prepare prepare for a longer session here. So I 
I think what you said, there's a lot of interesting points and, uh, you know, people should become familiar with Excel. Uh, it's a very powerful program and you're going to need it, uh, especially if you want to really understand uh, all the way to the bottom. So you, you have and to the have beauty that organizational of this, tool. Uh, I'll tell you the beauty <laughs> of this, Andrew, is uh, I was, uh, my kids laugh because I, I, you know, I can't help my 15-year-old daughter with geometry, um, but, uh, or calculus I probably snuck at. Um, but I was really good at fourth grade math. Um, and, and really, to, Perfect. To, that's all you need to, 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 to understand finance and supply and demand. If you could add, subtract, multiply, and divide, uh, you got it. But in the world of uranium, you got to roll up your sleeves and you got to go out and it's a grind. And you got to just be prepared to spend a ton of time. And if you're prepared to do that, you know how to do basic math, then you could start to, to start to get there. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, so Mike, moving on. Um, so we know you represent uh, Sachem Cove and, and yourself personally. While you might not be able to comment on Sachem, uh, you personally have, have you've been mute regarding your real thoughts on some of the best companies you like in the uranium space. So are you breaking that silence with us today? And if not, uh, why? Uh, I am not. Oh, a couple of things. You know, um, I'm quite cognizant that over the last year and a half or so that I've become a public voice of uranium, which is just random. I mean, who knew? Um, uh, I started, I gave a presentation in April of 17 on real vision, and then it turned into speaking at conferences and then having industry associations asking me to speak because I, I brought up some issues that hadn't been discussed um, and hadn't been explained, and and um, that turned into a public thing, and one thing led to another. Um, and like I said, I laugh when people call me a uranium expert. Um, but but uh, you know, I, there's a vehicle that I'm in charge of, and um, the first thing is I don't want to use my voice, my public voice, as saying here's something I really like, um, because I don't know who's listening to me. I don't know if it's something that's that they want to own or not. They don't know why I want to own it. Uh, I, I have a, a vehicle that has a time horizon, an extended time horizon. And there are investors in that vehicle who have an extended time horizon. Now, I think that time horizon is, is, is very soon. Um, but uh, I don't know. Some people might be traders. Some people might like to whip stuff around. I, I pay no attention to that stuff. Um, uh, I don't want to be influencing them, uh, uh, and and I also have an obligation to my limited partners, um, uh, to who who are paying me to do that to to provide uh, you know my my best efforts for uh, getting at the best prices that I can uh, uh, investments in 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 this vehicle, um, so. You know, I, I don't want to unnaturally influence the, the, the price of a stock because I come out and say, oh, here, I really like it, and here's what it is. These stocks are so thinly traded. This isn't Apple. This isn't Microsoft. This isn't where if, where if I came out and said something, who cares, right? Nobody cares. But these stocks could trade twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a day. There's nothing. There's no volume. So, you know, I could be out in the market at any given day accumulating uh, shares. I could be buying a block from somewhere. Um, I could be, there are times where I might be financing through a private placement something and, um, 
you know, there's all different reasons. Um, um, I'm happy to share the macro, my macro view, and people shouldn't take my word for it. Do their own investigation. You know, one of the things throughout my career, I've been wrong plenty. You know, if uh, right, if if you're a good investor, you're going to be wrong. And uh, throughout my career, I've had investments that have not worked um, where I thought they would work uh, with best efforts and everything. So, you know, I'm, but I'm happy to share my 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 work on it. And I'm happy to share my thought process on it. Uh, but in terms of the companies, you know, for for myriad reasons, uh, I don't like to talk about. And also, quite frankly, Andrew, I'm you know, I'm on Twitter. Uh, and um, it's it's a big platform, and if I start talking about individual companies, I get bombarded. I would direct messages. I get bombarded with people tweeting me, um, and I, I've I've done and uh, again, I, I I think my work is right, but it may not be. But I've done an enormous amount of work, whether it's on the industry and on the individual companies. And so, if I'm to start opining on something. Um, and, and I've seen it on just different things on the macro uranium stuff. People come at me with a million things and it, it, you know, I would spend a all day on Twitter, B almost all of it that comes at me is random and, and I, it's well thought into, into my analysis. Um, and I'm, I, I don't have the time or the interest in debating and arguing people for stuff that that's half cocked. Right. So, um, so anyway, and and right. so there is a proprietariness to my work, and and the, the the proprietariness is reserved for 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 the vehicle that I have. Not very well, and I think it's important that the audience and and folks need to understand your position on it because uh, their position is different than your position, and you know again, uh, we we don't have the time to uh, to discuss. You know, there's plenty of stuff out there. Do some research. There's lots of free yeah. stuff out there on the internet, and you can you can start with that and. You know, bring bring the intelligent debate um, from there. Um, but you know, people you look, to, I, lo uh, I love intelligent debate. I, I, I love intelligent, and I love people coming at me, me with a great bear case. Um, and as you could probably imagine, I'm sure you see it too, being public on uranium. I get it every which way till Sunday. Um, but after yes. a couple of years now, and I and I encourage it. It does get a bit exhausting answering the same questions over and over that are just not accurate. They're unfounded. They're they're based on not a lot of analysis. Um, so after a while, I'll you know I've, I've really toned down my commentary on Twitter. I just if I see something that somebody says something materially incorrect, um, uh, then um, then I'll I'll chime in. But uh, you know I and 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 I I you know a lot of time people are are I'm dealing with institutional people. Uh, who are trying to get up to speed on the industry, and uh, there are some some bearish people come at me with that, and even there, you know, um, uh, a lot of it is very obvious, right? The the obvious bear case. That's and that's kind of what when I came at this industry, by the way, and I didn't mention this when I started doing my work. My like I said, my first ten years of my career, I was a dedicated short seller. I mean, I was in the weeds. I was looking for bad companies and bad guys and looking for bad stuff. Um, uh, I came at this and said, let me see if I could prove the bear case. And if I can, I'll go look at something else. And I couldn't because the bear case was so obvious. And I still, the bear case that I see is, that, look, there, there is a bear case, right? Of course, 
uh, well, can a reactor blow up? Yes. Can China stop buying uranium? I suppose they can. Can they never build another reactor like people, some people say? Well, yeah, I'm sure. Um, okay, and, and um, uh, is, is there... Uh, is all this uranium going to come out of the ground when the price gets to 40 bucks? That's what consensus is. Yet, yeah, no. And I, I could explain my thoughts on that. Um, uh, you know, but so yeah, there are some 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 good ones. But you know, uh, I think people, you know, there's enough information out there on the macro uranium thesis for people to dive in and and, and do their own work. Right. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, we, we respect your decision on this, of course, and uh, we, we needed to ask it. And, and we may twist your arm a couple more times before this yeah. is over. But but we wanted to ask it for the for the sake of our readers who ask us I to could, ask you. No, and, I uh, totally get it. I totally get it. <laughs> and look, right, you know, right. I own a few of the companies that you would expect I would own. Um, sure. Uh, right. And 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 uh, and and. and uh, some of the great assets, right? Um, right, and, and look, if people if people want to know what what Mike Alkin's doing, uh, get go go ahead and join the fund. Go ahead and and, and put your money where your mouth is and join his fund. <laughs> well, even they don't know. <laughs> um, right. They, so, you know, we 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 tell our investors, uh, you know, um, uh, they 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 get commentary from me. They can speak to me, but they uh, they might know a couple of positions we own. Um, but sure. that's that people who invest in hedge funds understand how that works. Um, right. But yeah. So, you know, and, and it is, uh, sure. Um, you know, but, but, but there's the, no the, doubt, there's no doubt that, you know, being, being a part of the, being part of the fund, uh, you know, you do get direct, direct access to Mike. You do get more information, uh, that, that, that obviously Mike would share with, with certain clients. So it makes sense. <laughs> yep. Which we're, we're, and, and I'm, I'm, uh, we're, we're, we're very close to, to not accepting new ones because we're we're happy with where our 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 um, our, our asset level is. Um, but the right, right. the um, but yeah, you know, okay, I'll give you one. Do I like next gen? Yes. I um, uh, do. Do I think it's a world class asset that is materially mispriced? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, so there there you go. I'll, I'll give you one that that would shouldn't surprise people. Um, <laughs> Um, so, uh, uh, some things are just world-class and yes, it's had a tremendous move from discovery to here it is, but, but do I think when, uh, when the institutional world wakes up to, to the sector again, and it's starting to, I could tell you from over the last couple of years from having friends in the industry who showed no interest to now wanting to pick my brain or institutional allocators of capital who are now putting capital to work in funds that are doing this, um, you know, they will find that uh, uh, some world-class assets, right? They're, 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 um, they're smart people. Yes. And, uh, you know, so yes, do, that, that would be something that I'm, I'm comfortable to, to say that I do. Um, again, but what right. I don't say is, is it a small position or a really big position? I don't talk about that. Um, I, 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 I do like, uh, but, but that's, that, that's one that I think is, is great. Now that shouldn't surprise people, right? right? That's, um, no. but, uh, but, uh, you know, I also own a private uranium company that, that owns, <laughs> that has mineral rights, uh, uh, in the United States. Um, so, uh, you know, right. we, we, our, our, our fund does. Uh, so, so and, there's yeah, all different and people, things. 
Yeah, and people people need to get that that uh, there's a time and place for everything, whether it's a, a liquidity of a New York stock exchange listed company, a yep. exploration play in Africa, the timing related to well, development stories in so, Africa versus uh, Canada. There's there's always a time and a place for these types. Andrew. And it depends where the market's mindset is at the time, right? There's a time where, look, the way I I have the portfolio is I have really big positions at the top, and then I have a small bucket. Um, I'm I'm happy to have a a small percentage of of capital devoted to way more speculative stuff where I think the risk-reward is significant, but... But there's a chance that something doesn't happen, and if I'm wrong on the cycle, those things are going to get pummeled, right? Um, so that, and that's another reason why I don't like to say, oh, I, I might like this name, but it could be a couple percent position, which means you know not a lot, right? Um, so uh, that's yeah. how I, I, I don't so, like to to talk about. So asking, asking, I don't know if you can share this or not with the uh, uh, what? What's the what 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 would you for for the for Sachem Cove? What what is a uh, give us give the audience an idea of a, a position size that you might use percentage terms? I mean, if I really like something, I'm comfortable at double digits. Um, okay. Uh, if you know if I'm something's really a flyer that's speculative, um, you know, just it, it doesn't have to be Sachem Cove. Just throughout my career and how I'll think about it, right? So it's not Sachem Cove specific, but if you think about how I take my my view of of managing is you don't get a lot of shots at the apple um so you want to you want to if you think you're right on something you 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 gotta make make some bets so um uh if you have really if i if i in my past if i have really high conviction i'm i'm comfortable at at uh you know low low double digits um maybe a little bit more um if i'm uh if i'm if I like the speculative nature of something, and these are all speculative, by the way, even the best uranium company is highly risky, highly speculative. Um, I don't care what right. it is, um, but but something that's even way down on the day, and it depends. Did I did I get warrants? Did I finance it? Um, right. So that sure, plays price. into it. Um, right. Price. Yeah. What, what everything comes down to what you paid, and you know. Um, sure. So you know, a small like I said, small can be. One two percent is how I've always thought about a portfolio. Um, if I think that I have multiples and multiples and multiples of upside, yeah, I'm willing to risk that. Uh, and then I want to know how much am I going to lose if I'm wrong? Because on some of these, I'm going to be wrong. Um, but uh, you know, so yeah. that's kind of how I think think through that. Uh, I'll tell you what I I'll tell you what I don't take the view is. Uh, um, um, I think there are some. Uh, uh, geographies that I'm comfortable investing in and others might not be comfortable investing in. Um, you know, you talked about uh, uh, um, some of the African names. Uh, I'm, Jurisdiction. I, 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 uh, yeah, I, I, it, I, I understand that they carry guns there. Um, I get it. Um, I, I, I've spent a lot of time throughout my career understanding these geographies and understanding the, the risk and reward of that and uh, what the, you know, uh, how much does a country rely on that certain uh, mineral for uh, the amount of revenue it brings in? What's the likelihood they're going to do something stupid and change the codes real sure. quick? Um, but it doesn't mean I say no right away. I don't sit there and say, absolutely not. Um, you know, um, I think there are some really very, very interesting values. Um, again, right. what's the price I'm paying for the uh, for the uh, for the risk I'm taking? So, right, absolutely. So, um, moving on to some other other topics. Uh, yep. 
so actually on the on the topic of jurisdiction mike give us give us uh give us uh you know maybe two jurisdictions that you like right now as far as timing goes uh well you know so that's it's that's an open ended question and uh, so as you can tell i like to talk about uranium so um look i think it, the the everyone uh is focused right now the uranium world is focused on section 232 um and you know the the, the buyers of the fuel of the uranium uh, fuel buyers they're focused on section 232 and the us cons- uh, is buys about 30% all the uranium in the world so so go them so go so goes the, the the marketplace, and so uh, you know people are uh, the fuel buyers want to know who do I have to buy my uranium from, right? So 232 will have some resolution uh, yeah. uh, from Commerce in in April, uh, and then Trump has 90 days if Commerce uh, recommends doing something. You know the 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 ask is for a quota of 25% to be bought from U.S. Uh, fuel buyers. So you've seen a lot of people anticipating that to happen. Um, you know, that is something uh, that it starts to get priced into stocks. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've had a lot of experience over my career looking at regulated industries uh, and looking at governments. I, was, I did a lot of work in the for-profit education industry for a couple of times in my career, a tremendous amount of work. And I understand that, uh, that it, things happen. Um, you can't assume one, uh, with enormous conviction that because something is so obvious, somebody's going to do something, right? Now, I think it is very politically popular for the Commerce Department to recommend something be done. Um, I've, if I'm Wilbur Ross, yeah. I probably don't want on my watch to be the guy that said, nope, forget it, let this industry just disappear. Um, I, so uh, what that is, though, who knows? Um, right? right. Uh, the uranium mining industry is much, much smaller. It's a gnat compared to the electric utility industry. And the electric utilities are fighting like crazy, saying that we don't want this. We don't want to be told. Our, we have the Kazakhs, the Russians, the Uzbeks. They've been great, responsible suppliers. Right. You, you go to the comment sections of, uh, at Commerce, and you can read this stuff. And, you know, OK, I, I, I suppose. Um, but, you know, we're I'm a big geopolitical junkie. And, uh, you know, we're in Cold War 2.0 and we have been for quite some time. Right. So so you can make a really strong case for, yeah, the Uzbeks, the Kazakhs and the Russians have been great suppliers. But, hey, let's not kid ourselves. They, it is a geopolitical tool for Mother Russia. Energy is of course. So, yep. so, so what down. happens? Does that mean 232 is, is a slam dunk? I, nothing's a slam dunk, right? Because you don't know what takes place in these, in, in, in with the horse trading that takes place, right? My guess, if you know, if uh, I, I have to make a bet, right? So, my guess is something gets negotiated. Uh, if I, if right. I, and I am a betting man, uh, something gets negotiated that lets everyone kind of save face. That keeps the uranium miners uh, going. It gives them life. It gives them some breath. The utilities can can um, can live with it. Right again, uh, and and Agreed. you know. Yep. Uh, so I spoke. I spoke. I told you I spoke at the NEI, the Nuclear Energy Institute, and I spoke to these fuel buyers back at the end of October. And um, 
you know, I stood, I stood up there and I said, now I'm looking at 150 people who don't like me <laughs> because they think that uh, I'm telling the world whenever I speak about it that, ah, it doesn't matter. These guys, it's nothing. It's only a few percent. They don't have real issues. That's not at all what I say. Um, and Andrea Janetta, who runs Fuel Cycle Week, uh, the publication that is, uh, uh, you know, the the the, the weekly uh, publication that m- most of the industry reads, um, she and I have become friendly. And but we we there was this tension in the air that I always felt. And Andrea would write in her uh, commentaries, uh, you know, oh, the dumb investors are in the room. Uh, they've seen this thing before, and uh, and you know, talking. So after the conference, uh, after I spoke, Andrea and I were chatting. Uh, uh, we bumped into each other, and she said, "Well, why are you here? Why are you talking to these people? You, you're just a mouthpiece for the uranium miners." I said, "What? <laughs> like, what are you talking about?" And she said, um, "She said, yeah, you." You know, you're talking to all these fuel buyers about costs and all this stuff, but you're really just a mouthpiece for the miners. I said, wow, we've never really spoken before, but you talk about two ships passing each other in the night and just like not knowing what's going on. I said, I'm a person who allocates capital to a mining industry. Um, I'm the last person the miners really want to be talking to sometimes because um, you can't go out and play the pounds in the ground game with me. You can't go out and buy some bullshit pounds of uranium that will never see the light of day because you need to go out and raise money six months from now or three months from now, and you need to have something good to tell people. That's really not good. You bought stupid pounds in the ground, and you went out and bought them so that you could go raise another $2 million to keep your lights on. Um, and you, 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 but you, but you added some debt to the balance sheet, and these pounds are stupid pounds. They're, not gonna, they're uneconomical. But unfortunately, for the last six, seven years, you've, you've been selling stock to retail investors who don't know what to look for, unfortunately, and, and, yep. and, and unfortunate. And so you, you, you've, you've been doing it to keep afloat and diluting the living daylights out of people. Um, so I was talking to Andrea. I said, you think they want to be on the call? Because now here comes somebody who's an uh, institutional investor that's holding their feet to the fire and not going to give them capital for that. And is going to make them show discipline, and is going to say, "You can't bring this online at 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 at, at forty bucks a pound." Because oh, by the way, you could be telling the world that your costs are twenty five or thirty bucks a pound. But but I understand what a C one, what a C two cash, what what C one cash costs are. I understand all in sustaining costs. Now now let's let's go back and let let's dive through. You could say in your glossy presentation, your cost is X. But that's not the real cost to pull it out of the ground. Let's really dive through. You're putting royalties in there. You're adding back DNA. You're putting uh, transportation costs in there. Let's really see what your costs are. Your costs are much higher. Uh, but right. during the depth of a bear market, when you need to raise capital, you've got to make yourself look good. Now, it eventually shows up in the numbers somewhere. right? You can't hide transportation or royalties. But, but when you're trying to say, look, the market's at 23 or 25 or 28 or 30 bucks a pound, uh, we have really great costs. Look at us. Well, I'm still waiting to meet the first uranium miner that's not in the lowest quartile, right? I, uh, because they all say they're all in the lowest quartile. But the costs show up elsewhere on the P&L statement, right? So, 
So I, so, and as I said to her, I said, so, you know, you should be on the phone with me having some of these conversations. And she laughed and, and, and we sat down and I said, you got a, you got a minute? She said, yeah. I said, well, you know, I'd like, you want to see how I conclude all this stuff? She said, sure. Well, that lasted hours. We went into a little enclave at the hotel and I fired up my laptop. I said, here you go. Here's my model. Here's everything. It all flows into it. Here's primary mine supply, secondary mine supply, Japanese utilities, um, uh, every country by reactor. Um, uh, let's let's do our underfeeding tab. Let's go in and let's do look at all this. And here's 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 the math. And here's how it all flows into the main model. And let's take a look. And here's my math. And and here are the costs of each project that's going to need that's that to come online. And she said, yeah. "Wow, I didn't realize that." And so, you know, um, uh, the the um, it, it, it's a um, it, it, it's a, it's an odd space. So as I think about Section 232, uh, that's what the world is is focused on uh, right now. Um, I do, I do think um, that has uh, you know you've seen uh, the the spot prices rise. Um, so I think the the equities in some of the U.S. miners have worked uh, in anticipation of that. Um, you know, you always have to think, though, what happens if it something doesn't happen, right? Because nothing is a slam dunk. Um, I'm more inclined to think, right. it, like I said, it gets negotiated away. So, so how do you play the cycle? So that's that's part of it. Now, now, what's kind of been ignored during that, um, because of the excitement, right? Vanadium is another thing that people get again really excited about. Um, you know, I'm I'm. I'll be clear. I'm in this for the uranium cycle. There is some vanadium as at some of these mines have byproducts and it could change the economics. <coughs> um, but excuse me, but, but uh, you know, I, I, I didn't sign up to, to have a vanadium fund. Um, so, um, but it can help on some of them. You just got to understand what you're looking for. You got to really drill down and understand when you're looking at these things that it's, it's very common for, for companies and, to go chase hot commodities, right? To, to say, oh, we have this. And then the prices roll over and you got to be careful. So you got to understand this. What happens if that happens? Can they still make a go right. of it, right? So you got to understand that stuff. So, uh, yeah. but I think geographies, right? I, I think what you've seen is if you stare at these stocks throughout the day and you look at them over a period, a long period of time, um, you know, you've certainly seen the market not appreciate some of uh, the really higher grade stuff. Um, uh, that you would find uh, up in Canada. Um, you, you've seen um, uh, s some of the African assets just be completely ignored. Um, so, right. you know, there there are there are things, and depending on where you're, you're trying to under, you have to gauge what the market psyche is. Right? Is 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 the market? Uh, and you know, I see it interesting now. Is it's been a uh, there's been a decoupling the last few months. You've seen spot price go up to twenty nine bucks. And for the last few months, the equities have uh, some of them have been pretty pounded. Um, but but what you could also see is some of the um, some of the bigger names are hanging in there a little bit better. Like uh, so, if they're hanging in there a little bit better, some of the bigger names, some of the more higher quality names, that could tell you you're starting to see some institutional bids starting to come into this space. You're starting to see the interest right. change. So, Mike, you, you spent a lot of time looking around uh, at these different jurisdictions and, and different folks in the industry, and you've studied a number of them and, and come to conclusions about various things. So 
is there is there some names of some credible people that you you've come to respect in the business that you want to share with us? Uh, you know, I've 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 met all types. I've met some really credible people. I've met some very uh, people I think are not credible. Um, you know, I've uh, you've had a guest on that I I have a, a lot of respect for that uh, I speak with and that I think um, gives some really good insight into the industry. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan of Dustin Garrows, um, uh, who has been around probably 40ish or so years. Um, I I think Dustin has seen seen a lot and he's seen it all. And uh, he understands the the cycle, and he understands what's going on in the marketplace. Uh, so um, I'm I'm a I'm a Dustin's. Um, you know, uh, there are I I prefer not to say which CEOs that 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 I hold in high regard and those that I don't. Um, you know, that's just kind of my own personal preference not to say that. But um, you know. Um, I, I'd, I'd rather not go into the company management uh, and stuff like that. But um, yeah, you know, Dustin, Dustin is is uh, is somebody that I I, I think uh, I have a lot of time for. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Dustin's a great guy, and and he's he like you said, he's seen it all. He uh, you know has has consulting agreements with various companies. He's been on different continents. Uh, so very very interesting guy and. Um, Certainly a, you know, he's probably forgotten more than we could ever learn. Yeah. You know, and for me, Andrew, I, whether it's the engineers or the geologists, um, I'm, I'm a sponge, you know, and I, guys who have worked in the industry 20, 30, 40 years. Now, look, they're also susceptible, some of these people from uh, falling prey to, oh, God, the market's brutal, right? Um, and not seeing the changes taking under place, but when it comes to projects and the history of projects, and it, it, they're invaluable in trying to uh, understand the history. The history is so important, right? Because you you see some of these projects get recycled and recycled and recycled, and being sold as as uh, great projects. And you speak to someone, they say, "Oh Christ, you know this. Here's why this isn't the case." So, yeah. But, but that right. is one. So, uh, so moving over to separative work units, uh, SWU, as we like to say it in short, um, where do you see SWU prices going in 2019, 2020? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's something that kind of, uh, you know, I'll go back to when I started speaking publicly about this. It was something you weren't seeing people talk a heck of a lot about with secondary supply, which didn't make sense to me because it was – uh, uh, you know, underfeeding SWU, uh, uh, underfeeding the, the, uh, at the enrichment, which takes place at the enrichment process. Um, you had a lot of excess capacity of separative work units at the time. You know, when when uh, there was uh, from the GFC, you had some demand came off. Japan went offline. That whole thing. Everyone knows that story. Um, but you had excess capacity, uh, and uh, you know the price of SWU at one time was as, as in, the, in the high 100s. You know, of uh, 180, 190. Um, and uh, um, as you started to see uh, it fall and fall and fall and fall and fall down to, you know, it was going into the low 30s at one point. And, uh, you know, co- enrichment plants are in the business of enriching uranium. That, that's how they make their money. Underfeeding is just something they do uh, to, that they can um, uh, you know, re- 
putting out some some extra enriched uranium product and sell into the end market. But at one point, you know, that was uh, upwards in the mid 20 millions of pounds that it was adding to the market. Um, uh, but you know, when you start to look at what goes into some of this stuff, and you look at where uh, you start to run into design limitations um, of the of the centrifuges, you know, the the Western centrifuges can go down to optimal tails assays about 0.18-ish, and the the eastern, the Russian centrifuges can spin optimal tail assays down to about uh, 0.1. And when you blend those two, you know, the market share of of 10M or 10X, the Russians and Urenko and and Areva and and, and the Western guys, um, you know, combined, you know, the Russians have half the market, you start to get into an optimal tails assay of like 0.15. And that's where uh, that's where you're at right now for the industry. So it, it you know, we started to, to look a while back and say, well, we're starting to see SWOO settle in here in the, in the high 30s. And um, uh, you know, the, the the as you start as we start to think about that, and you start to say, okay, well, they really can't drop these t- optimal tail assays blended market share wise that much lower. So we think that that's going to to start to have an impact um, on where prices start to stabilize and. And and really at those levels we felt as though that the enrichers weren't really making money uh, at 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 thirty five thirty seven thirty eight dollars swoo, and uh, you know we knew excess inventories were being drawn down and working their way through the fuel cycle and um, you know uh, you, you start to see Converdine close and and. and the converter, they put the conversion market into deficit, which resulted in conversion prices doubling. And you've started to see higher U308 prices. So when you add higher U308 prices and higher conversion prices, that equals higher UF6 prices. And, you know, U308, uranium, right? Conversion are the inputs to UF6. Uh, And so one of the last major stops is SWOO for the utilities. And so as... As we think that uh, you know, you're probably at the lowest optimal tails assays you can get. Um, the order books from these enrichers are rolling off. They have they signed contracts for SWOO just like the miners do for uranium. Uh, so as these order books are rolling off, they're not excited to go out and sell $38, $40 SWOO when they were getting well over 100 bucks for their separative work units in the past. So. Um, so from a design limitation standpoint, from order books rolling off, they're not going to go sign contracts there. And so, you know, our, our you know, view has been that it's going to uh, – SWOO pricing will start to move higher, and I think you're going to start to see it move uh, higher throughout 2019 and 2020 uh, is what you're going to start to see. And, um, you know, I, I – uh, I, I basically, enrichers are in the business of, of enriching, not underfeeding. They make much more money enriching uranium and selling it at those prices. Um, they want to be running capacity for primary utility contracts, right? That's what they want to be doing. Um, yes. So, so, so as as we think about it, you know, and, and I, I, I I spoke at this NEI conference, and um, you know, when you you were up there. Uh, they stood up there, uh, uh, Urenko and 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 Tenam, and and they started talking about it, and and uh, they basically said, "Look, we're working down our excess EUP inventory as high as the market believes." You know, they said as UF6 and swoop prices change, the optimal tails are going to change too, and um, uh, we're one of them said we're we're only really underfeeding to the extent that we fund some internal research and development. It's it's not our core business, and uh, 
they had done a consensus view of the room beforehand. Uh, they, they had polled people, and and ninety percent of the room thought it was there was all this uh, excess woo out there. Um, so, you know, it's uh, yeah, we, I, I am I am of the view that uh, that uh, underfeeding uh, in 2019 and 2020, the amount of pounds that hit the market uh, will start to materially decrease. Um, and I, I told a few buyers that when I spoke to them, uh, and then afterwards, you know, Urenco and Tenham were up there uh, not disagreeing. Uh, you know, okay. during their presentations. So yeah, I, I think that's that's been a uh, I, I think that that's underestimated. Right. Okay. Well, very well. I appreciate the uh, the comments and the views on that. Uh, speaking speaking on the same subject, uh, just kind of came to my head here as you were talking. Uh, Maybe maybe you can share some views on this one because this one's a really odd one, and I believe, and, and we might be a little bit behind uh, in our ignorance, but uh, Centris Energy uh, is a listed company, used to be USEC. What what's your thoughts on this company? Well, they're really a SWU broker right now. Um, you know, that's just, they they're a broker of SWU, and they do. I mean, they 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 have done some work. Uh, with the you know new technology, right? So they they have done work with uh, with uh, the government uh, for newer generation technology is what they can is what they can in, uh, for enriching, right? Because if you think about it, the U.S. does not have any of its own enrichment. So if if right. you just step back and say, okay, well, what's the this whole 232 is because uh, on the grounds of national security, you know, the U.S. miners are going to go out of business. Okay, well, that's that's cool. Um, and uh, well, uh, Centris used to run the, the, the gaseous infusion plants in, in Paducah, and those closed. Those have been closed for years now. Um, so the only enrichment, which is the important part of the fuel cycle, uh, yes. it's you know right uranium out of the ground can't enrich, can't power anything. Um, well, it can uh, for the can-do reactors, uh, but there's only a handful of. So you really need enriched uranium for the bulk of the, the reactors around the world, and so the. Um, so when you when you start thinking about that, um, who in the U.S. the only live enrichment is uh, five million units of SWU in New Mexico that's owned by Urenco, which is the English, Dutch, and German conglomerate, right? So we don't own it, um, and uh, you know, so Centris came out of Chapter 11, right, as part of that USEC thing, and with the Department of Energy, they developed a centrifuge technology, which is known as the AC100. Right, so the the AC100 is is a really pretty cool uh, uh, centrifuge technology. Now, to build one of those, there was a, a report in 2015 that the DOE did, and they estimated that the cost of the plant fully equipped with the required 1,440 AC100 centrifuges would be three to five billion dollars, and uh, to build. Uh, but right. if they delayed construction to like 2022, it could swell to like 11 billion dollars. Well, it's not being constructed right now. The interesting part of that was an AC100 plant built just to meet defense needs, because that was because you got to separate defense uh, legislatively. You've got to separate uh, defense and commercial needs. Um, so, sure. if you were to do that, the estimate at the time was to meet the defense needs, they would produce low enriched uranium at cost ranging from like 270 to 618 per swoop. Think about that, costs, right? Now, if you think about the historical market price of swoop, on average over time, it's probably about 100 bucks per swoop. These guys' costs would be that much higher. 
Um, so, but but it would be done for the for for government purposes. Um, Right. And so, uh, you know, uh, it's not done, and it would only be for much smaller amount. It would be for 400,000 units, hypothetically 400,000 units of SWOO per year. So, um, you know, it's, you've got to really understand, right? And you would think, okay, Centris has this advantage should the DOE decide to solicit bids and build their own enrichment plant. But the DOE holds the intellectual property rights to the AC100 technology. And they could license it to another contractor. Um, so it's not so cut and dry. Now, I don't have an opinion. I don't own it on that. I have no skin in the game on it, nothing at all. It's just <laughs> it's, um, at all. And, but so they really, right now, what they do is a swoop broker. Could they be Could they be in the mix? Should um, should uh, should enrichment become, hey, we got to enrich here in the U.S.? Yes. They have, the, they, they, they ha- they have proven they have done tests over a three-year period, and this it works. It really does work. Um, so it's uh, it's good. You know, Oak Ridge Lab also has a separate enrichment technology that uses smaller centrifuges. And um, I think in that DOE report, they estimated it would cost something like three and a half to six, seven billion dollars to build, um, with operating costs similar to those of, of the AC100. Um, so, right. uh, but that hasn't been those. Uh, haven't been tested yet, and a lot of this has to do. It's this has to do with Department of Defense needs, is what we're talking about. Uh, right. So, yeah. Uh, it's anyway, a, it's an odd. It's certainly an odd duck uh, that that yeah. particular business, and and their yep. bonds, their bonds in the market, and so forth, and even watching what the stock does. So it's <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. on on kind of the on kind of the same the same grounds, just a little bit. Just what's your thought? What's your thoughts on Lightbridge's fuel technology, and do they have a fighting chance to to get their fuel into commercial reactors on a on a wide scale basis? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I mean, they're just uh, unfortunately they they just keep disappointing investors. I mean, again, another one I don't own. I do. I'm aware of it. I follow it. Um, you know, it's 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 high assay, low enriched uranium, right? So. Um, uh, assays upwards of the 20%. They've they've got um, they've they've one of the research reactors they were testing in wound up closing, um, and uh, they were just going for a research grant uh, to, to get some money from the DOE, and that got knocked down. They're going to revisit it and go back to it. Um, you know, and, and the theory being is it burns at much lower uh, heat rates so that uh, you could avoid a meltdown type of thing. You could avoid having some of the backup systems that you need, which could lower the costs. Um, they, they've, they've had, there's, you know, the big four of the big utilities in the U.S. have uh, done, 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 uh, supported them. And uh, they also have their Framatome uh, agreement, uh, which is, you know, the Ariba thing, uh, or Rano, whatever they're called now. Yep. Um, yep. You know, do do I think in the, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I think the timeline is it's it's much I think more elongated than not. Um, you know, uh, I think people investors were disappointed when they announced their JV uh, with the French back earlier in the year that it would lead to all sorts of stuff um, and financial commitments, and it really didn't. But it did give it did give them access to uh, Framatome's technology and 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 their their know how. Um, I think people are looking for more of a financial commitment, and you know, I think the stock can run up to four bucks from a, under a buck, and now where's it sit? Like seventy cents or something like that. So, um, yeah, yeah, 
you know, I, okay. I, I, I don't, I don't have capital committed to either one of them. Not saying that I don't think they're interesting and working on sure. good stuff, but, but it's just not where I've committed my capital. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, just from the technology side, it's interesting to see how that yeah, might play out so. their, their methods yep. and, and yep. how it might go into maybe SMRs and, you know, the yeah, leadership. Ab- there. Absolutely. Well, but because the SMRs would use the high asset, uh, low enriched uranium, right? So, and, and right. I believe SMRs have, have a promising future. So yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so on another topic, um, Give us kind of your, if you will, just kind of briefly, give us kind of your secret sauce to your approach to an evaluating a uranium explorer, a producer, and a developer. How do you look at these from both a risk perspective, downside, of course, and, and how do you measure the potential upside? You know, and, and give us some just some brief topics, uh, points. Sure. Um, you know, and again, it, this comes back to right size, sizing, like uh, on on. M- Am I going to have a one or two percent position where uh, I think it's a uh, they have a large land package? They're in an interesting basin. Uh, it, they're in the neighborhood of a uh, of of where there's been some other projects that have been successful, um, but they're still very very early stage, um, and they have some smart people who have proven success in in, in exploration. Uh, and there are uh, some reasonable uh, opportunities that uh, can, through further drilling, uh, there can be something. So really early stage. Um, you know, I want to understand, uh, like, neighborhood, location, geography. Uh, have they done it before? Uh, what's the, that type of stuff? Um, you know, but, but those for me are flyers. Um, those are smaller positions. Um when I'm looking at a bigger project, you know, I, I don't, I don't look at these things and say, oh, look, EV per pound in the ground. We're 40 cents. We're cheap. We're 60 cents. Uh, peer group is two dollars. It's meaningless to me. Uh, in situ value is meaningless to me. Um, uh, I want to know. Well, okay. Well, you've got all these pounds in the ground. If you go back to what I said earlier, a lot of these guys bought pounds just to go out and raise money um, and and to have news to tell the market. Um, you want to understand are so I, I look at the project. What is the project? I read the, uh, you know, I'm going to read the, feasi- the pre-economic assessments, the pre-feasibility studies. I'm going to look at the assumptions that went into those. I'm going to run those by uh, the people that uh, I trust uh, that understand this and see if they're reasonable, see if the geology is reasonable. Uh, I want to understand uh, are the costs, how how dated is the study? Um what has been the mining inflation that goes into it? I, and, and that's something to think about as, as you think about the costs of many of these future projects that are out there that have known resources in the ground. They, they have measured and indicated resources of X. When was that feasibility study does, done? Um, are they going to have to be competing with uh, drill rigs that are being used for shale plays right now? Right. If if you if you're in the U.S. and you're uh, and you're uh, and you have a project that could come online and you're doing ISR mining, well, you're going to be out there competing for drill rigs against guys who are in, in shale plays, right? That that's a meaningful cost. Are you going to be able to get the labor out there um, uh, to, to to do this? Um, so it's really piece by piece going through. Uh, the the feasibility studies through going through the pre-economic assessments, uh, and then I want to understand 
Uh, are there byproducts associated with that? Is, what is the billing cost? If I'm looking at the economics, let's say, of somebody that needs to do a toll milling agreement that has a project, I want to know the, the cost per ton to mine it, the cost per ton to toll mill it, the cost per ton for G&A at the project, the cost per ton uh, for transportation. Uh, and I want to understand if those make sense. How many miles uh, is it from from where they're going to be shipping it? Does that transportation cost make sense? Is it reasonable? Uh, are yes. those mining are those mining and milling costs in line with what others might have? Is there anything that stands out that would make that unusual? Are those assumptions too aggressive, or are they too conservative? That type of stuff. Yeah, so absolutely, it, and, 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 and certainly for us. And I want to look us. at the cash flow of that project, right? So, what's the what's the cash flow that's going to generate? What's what's the present value of those cash flows? And you know, right now, nobody cares on some of these projects because people don't ever beat the market collectively. Doesn't believe they'll come into production, right? So at at this point in time, it doesn't care, but they will care. But I'm really careful on, 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 on the EV per pound in the ground game because that, that's a way to get sandbagged pretty easily. No, you have to look you have to look at a lot. You have to look at the GNA. How how responsible are they on that side? Is management is management funding their personal lifestyle and just minding the shareholders? You have to look at those things. You have to look at what is the shareholder structure? Does the Chinese own it? Uh, what's what's the <laughs> what is it? Is it already that's been that. Absolutely. Uh, what are the royalties on? So you know, you could look at some of these, right? Is it is it a Department of Energy lease where the royalties, if it's in the U.S., could the royalties could be twenty, twenty five, thirty percent, right? Um, right. Uh, is it a Bureau of Land Management lease where you you know you they're not paying a royalty, but they're paying a maintenance fee each year. You know, they're paying four hundred bucks to four hundred twelve dollars to stake a claim, and then they pay an annual maintenance fee on it. Is there a royalty attached to it? Um, you know, and that's when you're sure. looking at all these reports, um, right? Uh, under, understanding the cost structure is is something that I think people need to spend spend a lot of time on. And and I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I, I I what do I know? I I, I just look at stuff on if I'm, if I'm seeing the, the the Twitter banter that 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 you know that goes on on. Uh, that is always going on, but you know you, you really need to understand what you're looking at. When you're looking at cost, right? Is is it a C1 cost, your cash operating cost? That's a direct cost that includes you know there's blasting, mining, drilling, if for ISR projects, the hauling, the milling, the processing. Uh, does it include freight and marketing, right? Because you you're paying all those costs. Is it is it the, are they showing you the total production cost, the C2 costs? Right, that's that's all your cash operating costs plus your DNA. Right? Is it is right. it the are they showing you an all in sustaining cost, which is your C one and your C two costs? Now you're adding sustaining capital expenditures, which you know, if it's an ISR mine, it could be significant for for right. stripping and sustaining all of that development that needs to be done every year. Right. And right. then, you know, you want to get a fully allocated costs. Uh, right? Does it include future project exploration? Right? Does it include the the indirect costs and the overheads, taxes, interest charges, loan repayments? Right? So there's you got to understand yeah. what you're looking at with all this stuff. Yeah, you have to look at the infrastructure. What's it take to get? You know, do you have to bring in power lines? Do you have to? What's your what's your energy <laughs> generation going to be like? And in, in some of these places Absolutely. in Canada, what's what's Fuel the red cost. tape cost? What what about the sovereign nations? Uh, you know, you yep. have you have a huge community outreach cost. You have so many of these indirects that yep. that nobody really thinks about. 
Yep. And uh, so, you know, hey, how are we going to how are we going to get that billion three, you know, to get this thing going? So, yes, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, investors and speculators alike need to take a hard look at all of the aspects related to these companies before they even give them a dime. I mean, you have to t- have a hard look at it and then and then proceed with caution. Um, so anyway, good, good points you brought up. So moving on, um, Mike, you've given credit many times to your in-house uranium model uh, with your model and current factors in play and also some of the changes that have happened in the last couple of months. When do you realistically see a severe price upside in uranium to occur? Well, it uh, did. Uh, I think when 232 clears, whatever the outcome is, uh, when Section 232 is known, what the outcome is, I think you'll start to see utilities start contracting at a very meaningful pace, and they'll. Uh, I think they're going to be paying much higher prices for the uranium uh, on on term contracts. So, okay. you know, April a time frame. I would, I would, you know, sometime later. Tw- and I think the market, Andrew, is is uh, ridiculously underfollowed. And um, uh, for me, like I've said, I've said this before. It's the biggest disconnect between uh, price and value, fundamentals, and what's actually taking place. The right. supply destruction that is taking place. The new projects that will not come online and are getting delayed. Uh, and 2020 is, you know, uh, you could say by 2020, uh, a third of the utilities don't have their utilities, uh, their uranium contracted for, and that waterfall just falls precipitously. And um, look, the reality is, uh, you know, these projects are not coming back online. You know, a, a standard for, uh, uh, comment I hear is, well, at 40 bucks, it's going to start flooding, well, uh, uh, flooding the market with all these closed projects. I laugh at that because it tells me people haven't done the work because all of these closed projects, what are all of those closed projects, right? Um, it, it, does it factor in that Komenak and Samir from Murano in, in over the next uh, handful of years are going to be winding down, uh, which are the Arano projects in, in this year? Uh, uh, the Chinese just bought, uh, just bought uh, uh, Rossing, and so they're going to use that uranium for themselves. Uh, and uh, if if prices recover to the point where, because uh, there's only really one more contract there left, um, the uh, uh, the the you know Cameco, uh, you, you could talk Cameco uh, as as Cameco. It's it's convenient the low prices for Cameco to be saying that uh, the price of uranium uh, uh, is why it's they've shut down MacArthur River. Um, you know, as they start mining into other zones, and and uh, it 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 there are more challenges. It's more expensive. Uh, you know, my my call on Camago is I don't think you see MacArthur River come online till you're till you're well into the fifty sixty dollar uranium uh, because of of cost factors there. Uh, the Kazakhs, when you look around the world at the Kazakhs, um, you know they've dramatically underspent over the years on their uh, on, on their capital expenditures and in the type of mining that they do, the in situ recovery mining. It's it's a very big depletion curve that capex uh, needs to spend significantly. So uh, you know I I, I think that uh, their nameplate capacity is 70 million pounds uh, and they'll produce 55 ish or so, 54 ish or so. Um, I think it it that goes the other way, uh, not that the, the higher way. So. As I think about okay. um, and, and and the utilities are smart. They're, they're they're these are not dumb people. 
um, there, uh, they have had a, a perfect storm uh, where they have not had to go out and enter into long-term contracts because of the structure of the market. And I think that gets so overlooked uh, by those giving a cursory look to the market is, you know, as <clears throat> with uh, uh, after Fukushima and demand was slack, obviously, and, and you started to see these contracts roll off. If you go back and look at utilities and when they were buying, they were buying long-term contracting at the peak. That's because they were worried about supply. And so, oh, oh, five, six, seven, you saw the volume of long-term contracting go parabolic. And uh, right. as you started to see that, well, well, as they started to roll off, you were in an environment where you had the global financial crisis was still reeling. Uh, demand was, you know, electricity demand was weak. The Japanese were still offline for the most part. And um, and you had uh, these, these big trading firms. Uh, it started with a couple of the big investment banks that would go out and say to the utilities, listen, there's there's a, a lot of uranium out there, right? You've had you had excess mine supply. The miners should be ashamed of themselves. They were increasing production throughout this downturn because they assumed Japan would come back online quicker than it did. Um, uh, they, I don't think they calculated underfeeding to the extent that it occurred uh, in 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 their uh, views. So they were increasing production every year, increasing capital expenditures, which was crazy in 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, mired in this brutal slump. They were looking at the end of the megatons to, uh, megatons to megawatts program, where it's 20 million pounds from from uh, uh, Russian uh, uh, interballistic missiles being downblended from HEU to LEU, which is uh, reactor level, uh, reactor type uh, uranium, uh, nuclear fuel. And so they looked at that and said, well, this is coming uh, coming to an end. So we're, we're good. The contracts will roll off. They'll enter into uh, new higher prices. Well, a couple of the investment banks said, you know what? Uh, the DOE substituted not all 20 million pounds, but the US DOE started selling uranium into the market to the tune of 7 million pounds a year, 7-ish million pounds a year, uh, and underfeeding was really accelerating. And the, the bank said, don't enter into long-term contracts. We will, why don't you let us enter into shorter-term contracts with us, one, two-year contracts. We'll go out and secure the uranium, and uh, we'll charge you a fee for it. And it's called a carry trade. And that hadn't really existed. Yeah. So the utilities said, okay, yeah, well, that makes sense. Uh, you mean we don't have to commit? Yeah, you know what? Demand is kind of weak and there's a lot of excess supply. So let's just hang out in the market for a while. And that, that kept happening and happening and happening. And then the, and then some of the traders got cute and they went out and rather than going out and covering their own needs to those contracts, they stepped out of the market. Hey, we'll sell you 5 million pounds a year, but we might not go secure that 5 million pounds. So you start to develop a short position there. And then things change, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so when does it start to turn? Look, I think based on 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 uh, our, uh, my model that I I think that uh, you you are in the tens of millions of pound deficit for for the next several years. Um, so I think that when uh, Section two thirty two clears, the utilities start to come into the market, and I think you start to see pricing uh, long term contracts. Uh, start getting signed at much higher prices. Right, right. And, and just a couple follow-up uh, quick question, quick answers uh, here as we get through the topics. Um, I, I see the same thing. So for us, to the key catalyst at this point of the 232 outcome, and then the, the obvi obvious the obvious elephant in the room catalyst is the long-term contracting. So those are the two catalysts I see that are going to punch this thing forward. And one's dependent um, on the other. They're codependent. That's correct. And so 
with looking at your model just just briefly maybe you can give us a little bit more information do you have a count of how many contracts by year by country come off and and the rough volume that needs to be recontracted by the year well i mean if you want to go back and think uh yeah i mean i do am i going to share it with you no <laughs> you know i think what i'll what i'll say <laughs> is a third of their needs for 2020 aren't under contract um, so it, it, it ranges 30 to 35%. You could get comfortable in that number and you could do that annually. by looking. Yeah. Annually. Yep. Uh, well, no, it, it accelerates from there because the waterfall keeps escalating. And as you get into yeah. 2025, you know, you're pushing North at 60% as you start to get 2023, four five. And you got to remember, this is a time period where, uh, no new projects are being developed, right? So, I mean, I, I put up a slide at the at the Nuclear Energy Institute conference of 30-some-odd projects that I put up there that show the feasibility studies that require at least a minimum, a minimum of 50, and they're full of shit. They, don't, they need more than 50. Most of these projects need $60, $70 uranium to come online, right. and that's going yep. to, fill that, to, to fill that void, to fill the void, and, and so... The, you know, consensus view is, oh, like I said, it comes back online at 40. Nonsense. I think it, it, it needs the supply comes online at, at least at, at, at 50, maybe. But, uh, you know, and then you, you, you start staring out into 2027 and, and Cigar Lake runs out, you know, 18 million pounds a year. That That's gone. Right. And and then so what's the big, beautiful project out there? World class next gen, the Arrow project. That can can put it in the in the mid twenties, maybe a little bit higher per pound. These are responsible, real, sharp guys. They their their project is based on fifty dollar uranium. Yeah, they have eleven dollar costs on an all in basis. But first of all, you don't know when the project will actually get permitted and built. So maybe some will say 2023, 24, 25, 26, 27. Right? There's all this speculation as to how long the permits will take. Who knows? Um, but, 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 right. but then, then you got Cigar Lake coming offline and, and, and when you're talking a, a year or two difference here in the world of uranium, I mean, uranium moves in dog years. That's how long it takes to, to get this stuff done. And right. so, you know, people look, well, 2027, this is happening in 2025. It's all the same. Um, so, uh, and, and then, and then, uh, th these guys aren't going to flood the market and hurt themselves. They, 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 they could. They're, they're going to price certain contracts uh, at fixed prices, and then they're going to expose themselves to, to market pricing on the others, and they're going to gauge how much they bring online. Uh, but in the interim, there's a big white gap of space, of, of, of a gap between yep. primary, secondary, and demand. And and I'm not even factoring in the hundreds of proposed reactors and stuff out there, right? So. So yeah, I I I think that uh, I I think that you are at the cusp of severe uh, supply deficits, and, yep. and the kind of utilities. I, uh, I was going to say the utilities at at a third not having their uh, uh, needs covered. Um, I I think that only just uh, escalates dramatically uh, from there. Very very well. Well, we wanted to ask, and and it's a very interesting. Uh, 
piece of information and it would take a lot of effort and a lot of time talking and trying to find these these contracts and, and putting together a model for these contract expirations. Well, we, we, and, we, no, but we have them. I mean, you can see, I mean, by year, we have by year uh, how many sure. pounds were contracted in the spot market, how many pounds are in the long-term market by year. So that right. you can do that. You can do that work, right? Since Fukushima, um, you know, uh, you've had, what, a billion pounds come off term? Uh, replaced by 350 million pounds since, right? So you've got a wedge of 650 million pounds that haven't been purchased. Right. So no, I mean, that's you, a big you can wedge. Look at the, yeah, no, and, and there's there's some there's some different uh, research outlets that have some some good some good not not 100%. I mean, you can't talk to the utilities directly to get the 100% information, but there's a lot of information you can piece together and come up with a very very accurate figure. Yep. Um, yep. So. Okay, so moving on, a uh, couple, couple more short, short, you know, short questions and, and a couple topics to give some short answers on. Um, so, on secondary supply, you've you've probably done more work on secondary supply on the investor side of things. Uh, what is your view on underfeeding in the years ahead, and and would when when do you see that it would be attractive to, uh, for underfeeding to kind of kind of get going back again? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's it's not it's never attractive for them to underfeed. It's 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 a survival technique. Um, it's it's a cash generating technique. Um, it's uh, it won't as as demand picks up, they're going to be enriching and not underfeeding. So that it's, it doesn't become attractive for them. They they don't they don't sit around and say we want to underfeed. They sit around and say, okay, well, shit, let's underfeed. Let's let's do that because we're going to generate with this excess capacity. We're going to generate some ca try and generate some cash flow from it. So it, it it's 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 not. Okay, yeah, and it's good it's good to make sure people understand that. So that's the question. That's why the question came along, and and yep. I think some people are confused as as to this uh, some of the secondary supply sources and kind of how the underfeeding yeah. works. I mean, obviously, obviously high prices uh, set in a bunch of other issues that come along when, you know, uranium's at $90, $100 plus a pound. Yep. Um, yep. So uh, will, uh, will the recycling of depleted, depleted or used uranium uh, be a potential secondary supply source? And is it uh, substantial enough to matter? Uh, probably, probably talking uh, mocks uh, or some recycled tails. There's there's a pretty steady uh, amount of that that comes into the market every year. You know, you could uh, if you want to if you were modeling it out, you could pencil in between five and ten million pounds, um, and that's pretty steady. It gets it gets very expensive to do that, so that's a pretty steady, consistent number. So no, it, it's okay. not something I would expect. Okay, uh, so. Another another topic that came up: if the Japanese have been honoring their long-term contracts for uranium post Fukushima, would wouldn't the Japanese restarts be irrelevant from a demand perspective over the next four to five years? Yeah, I mean, I think that at twenty twenty-nine dollar uranium, that's well priced, and we, we I think we've moved past that. You know, I, I mean, I know there are commentators out there that say, well, it's still the Japanese restarts. Come on, you know, Japan has a hundred hundred and ten million pounds by accident um, because they didn't want to. Right, um, and then you look at, you know, how much of that is fabricated fuel, right? There's a big chunk of that that's fabricated fuel, probably half of that. Um, so, and and that's not fungible. You can't use it in different reactors. So really, you know, you're looking at mobile inventories, and and, and what's mobile inventories? U308, UF6, EUP, 
Um, and 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 when as I looked at you know forty million pounds, well look how much uh, you know it, it, it's not a lot. Um, so uh, no, I, and and as I you look through uh, you know Japan and 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 what's running there, right? What's running and and, and it's going to buy Kansai Yushu, uh, Shikoku. They're up and running. Uh, 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 you got eight utilities that are not running that that have some inventory, but uh, the ones that are up and running, I think you're going to see come back into the market. If somebody wants to do a really fun exercise, go back to 2000 and model out in-process fuel and uh, fuel in the reactors. Look at the Japanese balance sheets of the utilities, which is what we did going back all the way, and you'll see periods of time where inventories uh, are in the uh, 10, 15, 18 years. Um, so uh, you know, it's another number that people just talk out their ass when they're talking about Japanese inventories, um, uh, saying, well, they have all this inventory. Okay, well, go back and look historically and see how much they keep around because they don't produce any uranium in Japan. And so see how much they're comfortable with, right? So, yeah, it's, um, so I, you know, I think that, yeah, the Japanese restarts, yeah, they help. We, we factor in a few every year. Um, I, I mean, it doesn't matter. It, you know, you're using half a million pounds at a reactor, 450,000 pounds at a reactor per year. Um, so if, if they come online or not, the, 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 you know, with what we think is, is the tens of millions of pounds of deficit, um, is, isn't going to matter. Well put, well put, um, tend to, tend to have that, that same agreement with you on, on that. And Japan's an island nation and they've, they've had a historic, uh, record of keeping plenty of stockpiles. Uh, totally, totally. Yeah, it's the Not same argument space, we though. hear on on the Chinese are never going to buy uranium. Well, they've you know what they've bought, uh, uh, you know they they have three hundred fifty four hundred million pounds. My God, look at how much they use. Well, the the Chinese, the right. Japanese don't dip below ten years. Uh, the, the 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 Chinese aren't either. And if you look at the growth of reactors, we went back and looked at from two thousand how much they bought, how much they how much they bought, how much they consumed. And um, how much is coming online over the next several years from the reactors in construction? And what's a reasonable amount of uranium that they're going to keep around? Um, it's it's not five, seven, eight years. It's it's more than that. And if 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 they were to just draw down from what they have right now, just over the next five or six years, you'd be down to a couple of years, three years worth of inventory. They will never let themselves get in that position. They were never going to be dependent on anyone else. You know, so we think they're in the market buying twenty plus million pounds a year. Um, you know, they have this Husab mine in Namibia, which they bought back in 2014. The, the, the world thinks they're producing 15 million pounds of uranium per year. Uh, they're lucky to produce a couple of million pounds, maybe a few million pounds. They'll never do the 15 million pounds capacity. That nameplate capacity is going to be coming down probably to 10 million pounds nameplate. And I don't think they ever produce more than 7, 8 million pounds a year from that. And so they went out and bought the Rossing mine. And the Rossing mine is long in the tooth. It has some other zones that they could go out into. But um, right. yeah, they're, in, they're a net buyer of uranium. Yes. So uh, we already kind of covered this, but I want to want to reconfirm the, the the closing of U.S. reactors um, and the planned closing. It, it has no impact on this cycle. Yeah. So you know, we take out a number of reactors throughout uh, our our forecast period. Um, you know, check and we do that right. So we do it by reactor. Uh, um, and and those who have seen my my model know that it's you know we're we're very comfortable. Like I said, we went draconian on France in our forecast period. 
uh, you know, the France recently, the French recently came out and said by 2035 they'll go down to uh, 50% dependency on nuclear power, down from 75%. Uh, uh, so 18-ish. Uh, I don't have my model open, but it, it, from memory, it's 18 reactors. That number would be, I think. Um, we, we took that out in our forecast period, starting in 20, 2017, 2016, 17, and building the models. We we took those things out by 2025. Um, check, got it, got the U.S. reactors coming out hard. Um, yep. Yeah, so, you know, and, and I see that, right? I, obviously, I'm sure you do too, being a, a public person on this space. You know, uh, I'll, I'll get somebody email me something saying, oh, look, this reactor is closing. Aha, okay, <laughs> geez, thanks, thanks, pal, Got you got me, right? Or I'll, somebody will tweet me, tweet me about it. Like, oh, holy cow, didn't think of that one. So, yeah, no, those are in there. Right, right. And yeah, it's funny. And and twenty thirty five, that's what they said a few weeks ago. Wait till the protests exactly. get done. Yeah, oh, exactly. Out exactly. They decide yeah. to change yeah. that. They're protesting because <laughs> of high fuel costs and energy costs now. Yeah, good, good luck with that. Um, and, and we did the same thing on South Korea, right? Because President Moon, does, he, you know, he doesn't like nuclear power. We took a bunch of those out, too. They're not going to do that, but we took them out. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't like a lot of things, but looks like he's coming exactly. back around even with North Korea. Exactly. So I think I think that'll change Taiwan, Taiwan certainly, and and with the current administration in the in the states, uh, and, and with some of the state, some of the recent state actions uh, to to uh, prop up um, these, oh, very uh, some much of these so. reactors. It's, and it's, I and, and you know that's something that's something too is is you know we take the U.S. reactors out, but I don't think a lot of those will close because I think they'll get the state support. Um, and I, interestingly enough, pretty funny. Uh, natural gas has been two and a half bucks forever. All of a sudden, it, it's four and a half bucks. Um, uh -oh. Yeah, I know the shale plays are pumping it out like there's no tomorrow. But imagine, just imagine it. Imagine if natural gas was actually a natural resource, because apparently it's not. Because people assume it's two fifty forever, and assume those recovery rates are really as good as as the shale plays. Uh, as people think they are, and imagine that they just didn't have those depletion rates as they are. Um, imagine if there was something that just caused natural gas to spike up to the five and a half, six dollar. It's a four and a half. All of a sudden, at uh, 70, 80 percent of the cost of running those new those natural gas plants, all of a sudden that becomes gets flipped on its head, and and That's right. zero, 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 zero is is talked about when it comes to that. Right, and the only place the only place that nuclear plants are getting shut down in the states with with absolute certainty is or the uh, the crazy state of California. Well, yeah, and also right where 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 you have where you have competitive markets in regulated markets. Look, they they go they go to the public utility commission when the uh, and 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 they get their they get their relief right. In the case of the uranium guys, they have fuel riders in the regulated states. They go to the PUC and they get uh, increases and you know it costs the ratepayer a little bit more, but it, it goes on in the in the in the competitive markets where they're competing with natural gas. Then it's hard, but you're seeing the states start right. to step in and, and try and help them. Yes, yes, absolutely, and it's positive. And I don't think the the sentiment is starting to turn there, and uh, I don't see it going back the other way at this point. So totally, um, totally. Let's see what else here. Uh, so on another topic uh, is this is probably a simple answer: uh, Is Cameco the only producer that is buying on the spot market, or are there other producers that are getting in on the spot purchases at this point? Uh, the meaningful ones. I mean, I, I, I think Peninsula has bought a drop uh, for the for you know uh, for what they're doing, but uh, they are really uh, the, uh, the, in terms of the producers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
uh, Mike, so so take give the audience for for the folks who really don't don't know very much about this uh, supply chain or you know chain of custody that happens. Uh, give the audience a complete chain of custody ownership from the mine to the reactor. So kind of yeah. just give us a quick give us a sure. quick run from the take in the can all the way to the fuel. So the 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 the, the, the utilities like to contract at each stage of the fuel cycle, right? So they like to contract with the miner contract with the converter, contract with the enricher, contract with the fabricator. They like to control all that. Um, so the way it works is they, they pull the uranium out of the ground, uh, they they process it, they they mill it, uh, and they turn it into yellow cake, and they put it into drums. They dry it out, it, it's yellow yellow cake is what people commonly know it as. It then gets sent to a, a uh, to a conversion plant where it gets turned into UF6, uh, which is in gaseous state. And uh, and then from there it gets sent to an enrichment plant where it gets enriched. Uh, so it gets it's not fizzle when it comes out of the ground. So they enrich it for nuclear power. It's typically three to five percent. Uh, and uh, and then uh, for for weaponry, uh, it's it's above eighty five ninety percent for it to be uh, a nuclear bomb. Uh, most of the uranium that comes out of the ground is used for uh, nuclear power. Uh, and some some for weaponry and then some for medical needs and stuff like that. Uh, and then from there it gets sent off to a fabricator that uh, that that fabricates and puts it into uh, uh, fuel uh, fuel rod uh, uh, into the fuel rods. It gets fabricated and then sent off to the reactor. That cycle can take 18 months, can take a little bit less or a little bit more. Right. And so for the for the uh, for the beginners out there and the unknowing public, uh, again, this stuff, this stuff in, in coming out of the ground as as an ore uh, is, is not dangerous. It's not going to melt your eyeballs. It's not uh, this 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 fuel no. in a plant uh, under a meltdown scenario. It doesn't mean a nuclear bomb goes off and Florida is no. going to explode if the hurricane it, hits the power plant. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's it's you're, not you're getting you, you get as much yeah. radioactivity on a six hour flight from New York to L.A. Yeah, absolutely. Go out, go out here, go out here, especially in some of these countries closer to the equator. Come out here and stand out here in the sun. You're going to get more right, radiation exactly. from the sun. You'll get plenty of radiation and, there, exactly. And, and if you're in New York in the cold, guess what? Don't be talking on your cell phone too long because the exposure <laughs> might be a little bit more exactly. than what you get at a mine. So it's, exactly. you got to got to yep. understand some of that. Um, totally. So uh, moving on, uh, if the nuclear business only involved utilities and miners, would a secondary market exist? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, if it only well, no, because your secondary market uh, comes from enrichers, right? So um, the only reactors that could run off of natural uranium are can-do reactors. And there's only a handful of those around. They were they started out of Canada, so you need you need to enrich uranium, and uh, so the enrichers, right? So a big form of secondary supply has been underfeeding, right? Which is the process. Right. Uh, at, at, uh, at the enrichment level, uh, the, the other sources of secondary supply um, would be the downblending of highly enriched uranium from weapons, which we saw from uh, 1993 to 2013, where we saw, you know, about 400 million pounds come in from the Russians into into the U.S. Uh, so that's a source. The recycled uranium, uh, uh, mixed oxide fuel, is, is another source. Uh, the Department of Energy at, at one point was selling, uh, was bartering some uranium to some contractors that were paying for a cleanup. Uh, and then uh, really your other secondary source is really some inventories that get sold into the market. So, no, it would still exist. 
Right, exactly. And I think I think this this person might have meant that if the utilities actually controlled the enrichment, the conversion controlled everything. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, the, less, you, but you'd still have it. Yeah, you'd still have it. Uh, you would. Yeah, utilities yeah. used to be in the mining business. Um, that didn't work out very well for them. Um, so, uh, yeah. So they 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 they've tried to ver- vertically integrate, but that that wasn't a win for them. Sure. So, so Mike, switching gears uh, regarding the big broad market, how do you see uranium equities holding up under a broad market bear? How likely uh, are we to see this scenario come during this uranium cycle? Yeah, you know, I think that will depend on where you are in the fundamentals, right? If if today 232 is happening, uh, if 232 is cleared up today and contracting was signed, I, I think it would uh, the fundamentals would far trump. Uh, what's going on in the overall market doesn't mean some wouldn't get hit right now. You see it now during the last couple of months, October, November, the markets have been choppy. The crappy little junior miners, and I say crappy, meaning I don't mean that derogatory, just the small ones, the tiny ones. You know, there's some of these things trade twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a day. You know, Bob sitting on his couch in, in Manitoba who wants to sell some stock because he wants to do something um, can move this stock down ten percent. Um, and if the markets are getting uh, hammered, uh, some of these are in some of these indexes. You see them, you see them get sold. And when there's risk off. You know, miners in a, in a, is still in perceived by the market in a bear market. They're they're going to get get hammered now. Um, so yeah, you you've seen some of that take place over the last uh, couple of months. Um, but I think as the cycle keeps wearing on, um, and as the fundamentals and 232 being that big that that, that big guidepost there, uh, and again whatever it is. If it's if it's not if nothing takes place, it's going to hurt the U.S. miners a little bit, right? Those stocks are going to get uh, hit. But but then again, uh, if it, when you step back and look at the supply demand or the the, the, the supply deficit, I think even they're going to do fine too because you're going to need all the uranium you can get. But you know, uh, sentiment-wise, it might hurt them. But but as you start to see, right. if, if you start to see a fifty-dollar contract signed, I don't think it's good. On that day, the market's down a few percent. I think you're going to see sentiment change pretty quickly. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out because you kind of got a couple different points points of of, of uh, research. Uh, is yep. the the kind of the double pump that happened in the last uranium cycle? You had exactly. the global financial crisis knocked knocked it was already up high, knocked it down, and then it went up again. So you had a double pump, and then if you look at 2001 2002 sentiment yep. during that bear cycle versus the 2008 crash uh you you can go back and look at a chart of cameco in 2001 2002 and how it responded uh to mm-hmm. the broad market very very interesting how natural resources uh, responded back then yep. so uh and it's like anything you know the market's always searching out a bull market and if the fundamentals are uh, warrant a bull market i think you're going to see uh, a bull market occur right so comparing it, it, comparing to the last oh go ahead no go ahead sorry uh, comparing to the last cycle <clears throat> you've seen this you saw the fundamentals back then uh, you've researched them this time we have yeah. uh, are the fundamentals this time the same are they worse or are they oh, they're, better they're so dramatically better it's not even close in the last cycle you had 23 reactors starting I mean under construction and you know. 20, 30 million pounds of new supply coming online. In this cycle, you got 56 today under construction, and there's no new mine supply. You had Salamanca that could have come online at $40, uh, uh, you know, and now you've got the government uh, and uh, all the negativity there with not uh, not granting all the permits that they need. And then after that, uh, you are 
uh, you are at, at these pre-feasibility studies that are these bankable, these feasibility studies that are out there, they need $50, $60, $70 uranium for anything to get started. So, um, and then you've got yeah. uh, the underfeeders, uh, you've got the enrichers not making money at SWU. They're not going to, their inventories are tightening there. Uh, you don't have those sources of secondary supply that were there. The U.S. Department of Energy pulled off the uranium from the market. So I, I think it's a much better backdrop. Yeah, be careful with those countries that have an a interesting sentiment, uh, a significantly perverted government. And also yeah. with that, uh, look out for the places that don't have the uranium framework. Has has the country ever exported before? That's that's a big question. Sure. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yep. yep. So, um, okay, mo moving on here. So there has been a uh, recent, you know trend of delaying shutdowns in place like we just discussed, you know, France, Taiwan, right, uh, even right. even in the U.S. like we've discussed, and even now, yep. even starting to pick up in Germany. So how does how does the Mike Alkin model look, and how does the supply-demand situation look now over the next decade? I keep them in. I keep the closures in um, because, I'm, like I said, we're in the tens of millions of pounds, so uh, starting, you know, 2020-ish. Uh, um, we're we're in deficit now, I believe, uh, and 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 then it starts to get worse. So you know you got to remember, a reactor uses 450, 500,000 pounds a year. So uh, you know if if I keep them in the model, um, uh, just to, to to be conservative, um, that's fine. Um, but okay. it would it would only be, get worse. And, and that's I, I think I, I think one of the things I think that is a big misunderstanding is people play this as though you know, it's reactor by reactor, by this, by that, by that. It's huge. It's huge. There's not enough mine supply to meet the tidal wave of demand that's coming. And that's kind of how we view it. Right. You know, so it's split. So, uh, people try and split hairs and I, I think and lose sight of, of the bigger picture. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so, so what is happening in the, in the spot market? There was a lot of volume this year. Where is it coming from? And do you see kind of the same volume levels in 2019 in the spot market? And if so, how will the price react in 2019? Um, I mean, look, you got buying from a, a variety of players, right? Uh, you've seen new entities enter the market um, that have come in. Uh, that some are, you know, you've got the publicly traded yellow cake. Uh, you've got private investors. I mean, I know some um, uh, large uh, investors that are, are buying physical uranium. You've got some producers, you know, obviously Cameco that was in there. Um, then you've got, you know, the physical traders who trade in the midterm market, you know, they'll generate some spot volumes as they cover. Um, and then, uh, you know, utilities poke around a little bit. But, uh, uh, you know, it's it's these entities that are coming into the market uh, that are, are also sopping it up. Right. Okay. So uh, with with on the same kind of question there, uh, with the various uranium holding funds accumulating supply and with a large production potentially entering into the market at above 50 per pound. Do you see demand being satisfied around these levels? And will these funds start to monetize a little bit of their holdings? No, I don't, I, I, no, I don't think so. I, I think it's going to come down to going back to what I said earlier. Uh, people assume the restarts will just uh, – people assume the given in the market is that the Kazakhs can pump out all they want at 40 bucks because they have lower costs. Uh, I'll go back to uh, – uh, the Kazakhs floated 15% of the company public. A third of it was bought by the pension plan uh, of, of Kazataprom, of uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, uh, others, 
other interested parties received a chunk of stock, uh, and now they're going to float another 10%. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think is, you know, people are working off the premise that the, you get this flood of, of uranium coming into the market. Like I said, I, I don't think the Kazakhs uh, produce nearly as much as, as as people anticipate. I don't think Cameco brings it back anywhere near the forty dollar range. I think you're well into the fifties, um, and uh, and the new projects aren't coming online. So no, I don't. I don't think there's there's this, there's this mental guidepost that people have in their mind, and I I, I think it's just because that's where. Um, you know, people look at where uh, where they started talking about where's their contract book. You know, these companies have been decimated. Cameco's been crushed. Kazataprom, uh, if it weren't for the Tenge devaluation, where the Tenge went from you know the high 100s to to 370, where they cost in Tenge and sell in dollars, their margins would have gotten pounded. And now when you look at their future plans, it's based on 340 Tenge. We're at 360 today, I think it is. Really? Like, you get an oil rally. It, it moves with the ruble. Get the ruble rallying. All of a sudden, their their entire cost structure changes. Um, look at yeah. look at how much capex they've delayed over the last several years that they got to go spend because ISR mining has big depletion curves and they've not been spending there. Um, so uh, there's there's this view at yeah you know there's their costs are going to come back online at forty okay well that's great have another beer sit down and 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 assume you know the uranium world because that's kind of where you think it's going to come back on. So, so uh, what indicators do you look for when it's time to close uh, uranium investments? Uh, that's, that's the, the hardest part. The hardest question I get asked is if my thesis is right. Again, I could be wrong. If my thesis is right, the hardest part is when do you sell? And that is where if the thesis is right, you, you obviously as a, as an analyst, I'm looking at valuation, but I've often seen things go way too extremes. People get way too excited uh, on the upside and way too pessimistic on the downside. So I think you have to step back and say, okay, what do I own? What's this thing worth? What would a reasonable buyer pay for these assets? What's the reasonable multiple a, a an investor would pay based on the cash flow? What's a reasonable multiple an investor would pay for an acquisition, if, if that's how you're thinking about it? Uh, and then when the animal spirits are out, step aside and let the market take it over. <laughs> um, and and just when you feel like it's starting to get a little goofy because it hasn't traded there before, and if you're looking at the supply demand dynamics and 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 it's it's originally what you thought it would be, and you're kind of there, you, you just kind of that's where the art comes in, you know. Nobody ever went broke taking profits. Uh, bulls and bears make money, pigs get slaughtered, right? So, um, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I just kind of think you just got to kind of it's your own personal feel. Um, uh, you know, yeah. Right. Okay. And so, so moving on, uh, and, and then of course, when, when this happens, it's time to look for some other contrarian plays. And uh, yep. of course we have no idea what those are going to be because we don't know the, what the future holds. So exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so one, one other, one other point. So, uh, the, some folks were interested in, in knowing if, if it was possible, uh, that when you're doing uh, certain interviews and stuff at conferences and talking to kind of the industry key people, mm-hmm. uh, would, would you, would you be willing to offer up some of these kind of raw, raw discussion audios, or is that something that's kind of uh, not really possible at this point? Uh, it's something I have no interest in doing. Um, I'm not, I'm not selling uranium research. I'm not selling, 
Uh, I'm not looking to monetize it. It's in terms of getting that's that's my proprietary stuff. Like that's um, you know I have the fund and and I have you know the vehicle and that's for my own consumption. I'm happy to share my insights from it, but like a seat at the table. That you know leave that to some newsletter writer who's going to uh, say that there here's the seat at the I, I I want no part of it. Well, well said, well said. Um, so how can potential investors reach out to you and Sachem Cove? Uh, well, first they have to be accredited. Um, uh, and there, there's a, we have a website. My, uh, my partner in the business handles any of the, any, any in, inbound inquiries. Um, um, you know, you just, I think you could reach, I, I don't even know, actually, you could probably just reach out to him on the website and he'll, uh, uh, through uh, uh, if there's a contact us tab and then he could get back to you okay okay very well and 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 of course uh, we know that sachem cove has a twitter account so there's there's some easy ways google search you can you can find sachem cove quite easily or yeah. just do a check out mike's account mike well we appreciate it uh, good times and we and uh, good luck as we get Andrew, i enjoyed it thank you very much uh it was great chatting